Good morning. Open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 11. We're studying through the book of Acts chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Our text this morning is Acts 11, verses 1 through 18. The topic, legalists threaten to add the keeping of the law of Moses to God's free gift of salvation. The title of our message, The Silence of the Legalists. Verse 1, now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. I said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, what God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you brought the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of the confines of Israel to all the nations of the world. And in reality, it's a whoever will believe message that we don't have to first become Jews in order to be saved, but that our salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. I pray that those of us who've been born again by the Spirit of God would rejoice today in the joy of our salvation, a gift freely given, freely received. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, that your spirit would draw them to you, even as we speak, that they would receive the remission of their sins and eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Some of the ways you can tell you might be a legalist. You might be a legalist if you believe water baptism is necessary in order for a person to be saved. You might be a legalist if you believe that observing the Saturday Sabbath is necessary in order for a person to be saved. You might be a legalist if you believe that speaking in tongues is necessary in order for a person to be saved. You might be a legalist 
if you believe that observing certain sacraments is necessary in order for a person to be saved. What is legalism? Legalism is the strict or excessive conformity to a legal code or set of rules. It is expressed by Christians in two ways. One, by attempting to base salvation on the performance of good works or on the strict observance of rules and regulations. Two, by imposing rules on yourself and others that are not based on clear biblical teachings or principles. It's easy enough to prove from Scripture that a person is saved by grace alone through faith alone. In every generation, however, there are those who come along and attempt to add something to salvation by grace through faith. Water baptism is a good example. There are groups that teach water baptism is necessary in order for you to be truly saved. If you're not water baptized, or if you were baptized in a manner they feel was improper, then according to them, you are not saved. For them, salvation is by grace through faith plus water baptism. It is these pluses that men add to God's free gift of salvation that constitute legalism and encourage legalistic behavior. The Apostle Peter was confronted by the original legalists. They were Jews who had received Jesus Christ as their Savior, but still held to a strict adherence to the law of Moses. The idea that a Gentile could be accepted by God without first converting to Judaism was unacceptable to them. Once a Gentile did convert, then he would be expected to obey the law of Moses. He would be expected to be circumcised, to restrict his diet to those foods listed in the Bible, to perform ritual washings, and to do no work on the Sabbath. Whether it's these first century issues or others like those I mentioned earlier, it's important that we silence the legalists. Peter did it by giving a gracious testimony that glorified God, and so will we. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, reveal the grace of God in your serving. And number two, revel in the grace of God in your speaking. First of all, in verses one through three, reveal the grace of God in your serving. From time to time, we're reminded that Luke was the author of the book of Acts. Luke, as he is writing, he's not typing out pages on his laptop. He's not scribbling on yellow pads. He was writing on extremely expensive scrolls, and yet he kept telling this same story over and over again. He devoted a full 66 verses to it. By contrast, the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus only takes up about 31 verses. And so this is an incredibly important story that has to be told and retold and retold. This is about the third retelling of it now since we began in chapter 10. The conversion of Cornelius and his household is critical. We might take it for granted in 2007 that whoever will believe can be saved. But in the first century, it would have been easy to assume that a person must also keep the law of Moses in order to be truly saved. All of the original believers were Jewish. They had received the Lord Jesus Christ, received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They continued to go to the temple to pray, and they continued in many of the temple rites and rituals. And it was an easy jump to think, well, if a Gentile's to be saved, they first have to become a Jew like us, then God can save them. 
That is exactly what a contentious group in Jerusalem believed. They were waiting for Peter to return in order to confront him. And so we pick up the story again in verse 1. Now, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Six Jewish believers from Jerusalem had accompanied Peter to Caesarea. It seems they preceded Peter home and told what had happened at Cornelius' house. It says in verse 2, <coughs> excuse me, when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. Peter, this, he had had this amazing experience with the Lord, uh, starting with the vision and then going to Cornelius' house and witnessing what the Lord was doing, God opening his heart to the great work of salvation to the Gentiles. I'm sure he was on somewhat of a spiritual high, and uh, they were gunning for him. As soon as he got there, this group was ready to call him on the carpet. And so they contend with him. Those of the circumcision uh, doesn't mean just Jews because all Jews were circumcised. It is a designation of Jews who also believed that a person was saved by grace through faith plus the keeping of the law of Moses. Later on in Scripture, we begin to call them the Judaizers, and you'll see them in the book of Acts. You'll see them uh, following Paul the apostle around. Paul would go and preach. He would make converts in a Gentile area. And as soon as he left, these men would come in and say, did you get saved? Yeah. Are you also keeping the law of Moses? No. Well, then you're not really saved. And so they were trying to add Judaism and the law of Moses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so those of the circumcision, this group of believers who, who were trying to force the keeping of the law of Moses, they said in verse 3, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Yuck. That's not in the original text, but that's the intention. Jews had no dealings with Gentiles or as few as possible. They never ate with Gentiles because of the dietary restrictions. And the dietary restrictions had grown into just total restriction. I mean, it wasn't just that they would, you know, you'd think, well, I can have uh, dinner with my Gentile friend if we just eat kosher foods. They took it to mean you couldn't have any real contact with the Gentiles at all. And so these guys, they heard, we saw in verse 1, Gentiles received the word of God and were saved for all eternity. And when Peter got there, they, all they could think of was, you ate with Gentiles. You're going to have to explain that to us. And so they're taking the work of God and they're reducing it to such a petty kind of a thing. Uh, and don't think this doesn't happen today. It does. And so Peter's actions ignored the traditional separation of those uh, between Jews and Gentiles. Their, uh, their accusation was, who are you to set aside the law of Moses and centuries of traditional interpretation? Well, we'll see in the following verses that he was a servant following his Lord. It was God who set aside the law and the traditions. What I want to point to now is that Peter was revealing the grace of God in all his serving. The whole story is full of grace. Peter had been in Joppa staying with Simon the Tanner. Even though Simon was a Jew, most other Jews had few dealings with him. A tanner came into contact with animal hides of dead animals and with their blood as he would prepare the hides. Death and blood 
made you ceremonially unclean. Even though you were a Jew and could partake of the temple rites and rituals, if you contacted dead things or blood, you were ceremonially unclean and could not go through the normal rituals and rites without going through some rituals of your own. Obviously, if you're a tanner, if this is your business day and night to take care of dead animal hides and drain the blood and all that kind of stuff, you're going to have a hard time really worshiping in the temple. And other Jews could not come into contact with you or your cooties would jump onto them. And so Simon was kind of an outcast in the Jewish community. But here we see Peter staying with him. Uh, and, and believing that he could continue in prayer and in worship and in serving the Lord. And so God was doing a, a work of grace in his heart. He was beginning on his own to see that God had broken down some of the ritual barriers of the law of Moses. Then this vision of Peter that he receives three times, it revealed the grace of God. Gentiles who had been considered unclean by the law of Moses were now declared clean by God. Again, Peter was understanding that grace was superseding the law. When he arrived at Cornelius' house, he went in and ministered to them, revealing God's grace, though it was considered unlawful. He knew that God was at work, and so he took that risk, and he said, you know, who am I to, to do anything but what God has asked me to do? And he goes in, and as he ministers, God visited the Gentiles gathered there with amazing grace, the grace of salvation and the gift of his Holy Spirit. And so this entire uh, story, this episode in Peter's life is showing us the grace of God. Everywhere he goes, he's revealing God as a gracious God reaching out to sinners, whether they're Jew or Gentile. The prerequisite to silencing any legalist is to be serving God by revealing His grace. Grace never violates any law of God. It always elevates it by superseding it in ways that speak of the love of God toward His creatures. Take people who want to observe the Sabbath, for example. They're very, you know, did you, 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 maybe you're going to go to work tomorrow and your friend is going to say, hey, did, did you go to church yesterday? Yes. Should have went to church on Saturday. Saturday is the Sabbath. And there are groups that go so far as to say that Sunday worship is the spirit of Antichrist. And that you can't be able, that you have taken the mark of the Antichrist if you worship on Sunday. That's what they believe the mark of the beast to be. Well, you're not going to have too many fun times with those people, I'll tell you, talking about what Jesus is doing in your life. Uh, and, and yet, we would go and say, hey, look, grace has fulfilled the Sabbath, has elevated the Sabbath. Every day is a Sabbath unto the Lord. Every day is a day of spiritual rest. I don't have to keep a Sabbath. I've entered into the rest of the Lord. And so God doesn't, in a sense, cancel out the law. He fulfills the law. He elevates the law. He supersedes the law. He amends the law in those different ways. That's what we're talking about. Now, you're probably not a legalist. Uh, if you were, you'd be calling me all the time. People do from time to time. They call me, oh, hey, we're, and they're real deceptive. Oh, we're checking out the church, you know, and oh, when do you meet, and where do you meet, and what do you believe about baptism? Whoa. Oh, well, you know, and I always know that I'm in trouble, you know, and, so, and then they get into their dialogue about how you have to be baptized to be saved and all of this kind of stuff. And so I know that you're probably not a legalist, but I do believe that we could have a tendency as individuals to act 
legalistically. We make up our mind about how to conduct ourselves in a certain area of life and behavior, and then we might project our convictions onto others. Let me mention a few things. Maybe you've come to believe that a Christian cannot go to the movies or watch TV, or that a Christian woman cannot wear makeup or pants or cut her hair or be in church with her head uncovered. There's a lot of Christian groups like that, believe it or not. Maybe you believe a Christian cannot get a tattoo or a body piercing. The body piercing one is fascinating to me because, honestly, Christians do believe it's okay to get some piercings. It's pretty cultural now for women to have their ears pierced. And so when people start talking about body piercings or tattoos, they always go to the Old Testament and they talk about, you know, those passages that talk about how you're worshiping demons and stuff. Well, but they never apply them to the single ear pierce. You know, the one, if a woman gets her ears pierced, that's okay. Multiple piercings, other places on your body pierced, men getting piercings, that's demonic. I mean, you know, hey, I'm not into piercings, mostly because I hate pain. Uh, (laughs) And I look ridiculous enough already, you know, just the way I am with big glasses. But anyway, uh, you know, and so all I'm saying is I don't want to get deep into that issue right now. But if if I listed enough things, somebody would say, well, well, that's that's a black and white issue, Gene. I'm with you on the other ones, but that's black and white. And, And we have a tendency to project a legalistic attitude onto others. If I hold others to my personal standard in an area where the Bible actually gives liberty, then I am acting legalistically. I want to instead be serving God in a way that reveals His grace, not His condemnation because of a particular behavior that I disagree with. Check yourself for areas of legalism. Just get alone with the Lord and say, Lord, am I, is there areas where I judge people, where I look down on people, where I think people are less spiritual than I because I do or don't do something? And here's the thing. I should enjoy my convictions as part of my personal relationship with Jesus and therefore not need to project them onto others. If, if the Lord and I are walking together talking with one another, fellowshipping with each other, and we come to the conclusion together that there's a certain behavior that would be wrong for me or that I shouldn't partake in, it's for my own good. Uh, it's It's a mutual decision on our part because I don't want it to get in the way of my love for Jesus. I don't want it to become an idol to me. I don't want it to become a barrier. I don't want it to become a stumbling block. And so I should be all excited about having a personal conviction in a certain area. And if I'm excited about it because I'm drawing closer to the Lord, I'm not going to look at other people and, and say, well, why aren't you excited about this? And so here's what I think sometimes happens. We get the idea, oh, I'm a Christian. I can't do this, whatever it might be. And I'm bummed about it. I'm bitter about it. I want to do it. But I, I feel like, you know, God won't let me do it. And so then I look at you and I say, if I can't do it, you can't do it either. And so I'm more spiritual than you. And, and that's really a kind of a legalistic attitude. And so if, if you have personal convictions about something, 
That's fantastic. Have them with the Lord and know that He's drawing you closer to Himself. And be careful about projecting them onto others. At the same time, you should be careful about your liberty in Christ. All things may be somewhat lawful for you, but they're not necessarily good for you. Certain behaviors are okay. They're in that gray area, but they can hinder your progress as a Christian. You're under a command to never stumble another weaker believer by flaunting a liberty or by encouraging them to participate in an activity that violates their conscience. You're to love them enough to limit your liberty. One thing I do see in the lives of many Christians who have been Christians for a long time, they would be considered by others and in their own heart mature Christians. They, you know, there's a a false sense that we've become so mature that we can begin to add back into our lives things that the Lord has removed, things that I was so happy that the Lord took out of my life when I first became a Christian, all of the things that were ruining my life. And that, you know, when I became born again, I was so thrilled because I didn't even have to fight against them. They were just removed. Now I'm a mature Christian. I think, well, I could probably handle that a little of that, a piece of that. And I began doing, begin doing things in my liberty. Or I have a liberty in an area that stumbles other people. And instead of having it to myself and to the Lord, I want other people to experience my liberty, and so I force it upon them. I do it in front of them. I, I bring them into my home, and I say, look at the liberty that I have. You should have this liberty. And if God hasn't given them that conviction, I stumble them. And they fall back into sin. And you know what Jesus said about that? He said, you might as well tie a millstone, a 100-pound weight around your neck, go out, uh, you know, ocean fishing, and jump in. That's how bad it is to stumble a little. And so this is a very sensitive but serious area. And so I should err on the side of revealing grace toward others and simultaneously be practicing strong discipline in my own walk with the Lord so that nothing is weighing me down or hindering me from serving Him or serving others. If I want to silence a legalist, I must first be revealing God's grace. Then I must revel in the glory of God in my speaking. That's verses 4 through 18. Peter was called to account for his actions. Verse 3, they said, you went into uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Peter had violated the law of Moses. And this is in the nature of a personal attack. They don't attack, they don't attack him doctrinally or ask him to explain his belief about the Holy Spirit or evangelism. They say, you, a Jew, ate with Gentiles. And it isn't even a question. It's a, it's a factual accusation. Now, I mentioned the personal nature of it to point out the sweet grace in Peter's speaking. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't even argue with them. What he does is something we should take heart in and really the heart of this teaching. He simply gave a testimony that revealed, uh, that reveled, excuse me, in the glory of what God had done. All through, he's going to say, this wasn't my idea. I didn't want to do it. All I was doing is serving the Lord. If you have a problem, you have a problem with God. And no one can argue with that. It's a perfect response because you can't argue with God and hope to prevail. People still do argue with God, but you can't prevail. And so Peter recites the events we've become very familiar with. 
Starts off in verse 4 and 5, reminding them that he was in Joppa praying. You're going to be more apt to reveal the glory of God in your speaking to others if you've been spending time speaking to God in prayer. If you've lost a graciousness in your life, if your speech isn't seasoned with grace, if you're not speaking as the oracles of God, maybe you need to talk more to God and hone that kind of a conversation. Then in verses 5 through 10, he gives this vision again of the sheet coming down and the animals and all of that. In a previous study, I explained to you the meaning of this vision. The sheet represented the church. The clean animals were the chosen Jews previously under the law of Moses. The unclean animals were the common Gentiles previously excluded by the law of Moses unless they first converted to Judaism. All of them were now equal and chosen in God's sight and all could be in the church and therefore would be taken to heaven when Jesus returned. The vision repeated three times. The number three would be significant to a Jew. The law of Moses required there be three witnesses to a matter. And even though God is giving this vision, he is his own witness, he does it three times to show that it was consistent with the law. He wasn't just completely setting aside the law. He was working within the law to elevate the law and show its true meaning. The Jew was never to be so separated that Gentiles were hated and despised. Jews were always meant to evangelize. Isaiah 42, verse 6 reads, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Sadly, Jews had forgotten that and had become ingrown and all of these different things. It's interesting to me, a lot of Christian groups today, Gentile Christian groups, almost hate Israel. There is a lot of anti-Semitism among professed Christians who apparently have forgotten that we should be reaching out to Israel and sharing uh, the Savior with them. And so prejudice, it's a very deep, deep streak that runs through our hearts. Peter continued in verse 11, he said, At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And so... Notice the supernatural elements so far. God sent an angel to visit Cornelius. God gave Peter a vision. At exactly the moment God gave Peter the vision, Cornelius' men were at the gate seeking Peter. Peter says, this happened to me. It wasn't my idea. I was just waiting for lunch. I was waiting for a kosher lunch. When all of a sudden, God sent a vision. He sent it three times to testify that it was valid. And just as the vision ended, men completed a journey from Caesarea and were knocking at the gate. And then I found out that he had sent an angel to Cornelius. All I did was go and go into the house. And verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And so this was never Peter's idea. He seemed to have broken the law of Moses, but he could not be proven guilty. He, he wasn't so much on trial as he was just giving a testimony. 
God's fingerprints were all over this supposed crime. The spiritual forensics all pointed to him. Peter says, I began to speak, and the Holy Spirit saved them, and the gift of the Spirit came upon them. No altar call, no urging, no pleading. We would put it this way. Peter didn't get together with some people and decide how to evangelize Gentiles. He didn't look at a map and say, let's go up to Caesarea and try and get some Gentiles saved. He was minding his own business. God sent him there. And by the way, anytime I'm going too long on a Sunday morning, this is the way to stop your pastor. Just receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Peter says, I, I didn't even, I was starting to talk. And you remember his talk from chapter 10. He was just giving a testimony of who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. And in the middle of that, these men repented of their sins, they received the forgiveness of their sins, and they began to speak in known foreign languages and glorify God. And so anytime I'm going too long, just go for it. Start speaking in Aramaic, and uh, we'll have to stop. Verse 16, then I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? In other words, God did this. Then he, I remember the word of God. He said, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Maybe the you includes everyone. And so who am I to stand in the way of God? God broke down the barriers. God superseded the law by his grace. All Peter had done was make himself available and follow God's lead. And when they heard these things, verse 18, they became silent. They glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. This word for silent can be translated either held their peace or to bring peace. Thus, we can't be sure if these guys were grudgingly silent or if they were gladly silent. Maybe some of them changed their minds. Maybe some of them didn't. Later on, we're going to see this problem again and again in the book of Acts and then on into the New Testament. Doesn't mean these particular guys were the only ones. And so probably some of them were convinced and some of them weren't. Some of them grudgingly held their peace because it was so obvious God was doing this. There was nothing that could be said. Others gladly held their peace. They had been reconciled with They understood what Peter understood, that God will be the Savior of whoever will believe. You may never change the mind of someone who believes you must be water baptized to be saved or that you must keep the Sabbath to be saved, or some other plus that they have added to salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But you can silence them in this same way. The legalists were silenced when they heard that the Gentiles had received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It was that supernatural experience that they could not argue against. If you and I are baptized with the Holy Spirit, if you and I are revealing the grace of God in our serving, if we are reveling in the grace of God in our speaking, having joy unspeakable and full of glory, we cannot ultimately be refuted. Your friend, your neighbor, your coworker, they may go on believing that baptism is necessary, that the Sabbath is necessary, that all of these other things that men invent and add to the gospel are necessary, ways of dress, ways of eating, whatever it is. 
but they're going to gnash their teeth and they're going to kind of choke on that as they see your life lived in the power and the energy of God the Holy Spirit. You don't really need to argue with them, although there is a place for Christian apologetics and for knowing what we believe and giving an answer to people who sincerely want to know what about baptism, what about the Sabbath. I mean, there's a place for that question. But you don't have to argue, and an argument ultimately fails. But they can't argue with your testimony of what God has done and is doing. They can't argue with His presence in your life according to the Scriptures, and, and this is what ultimately will bring them to silence. And so rather than concentrate even on the argument or on defending ourselves or anything like that, we should just get with the Lord. We should be sure that we have been baptized with His Holy Spirit, that we understand that our life is not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God who indwells us. And then we want to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit as we read His Word and allow Him to change us moment by moment from glory to glory. The bottom line really is we just want to live what it would be considered a normal Christian life where we can say, well, this is what we're doing, and the reason we're doing it is because God is telling us to do it according to His Scripture, filling us with His Spirit. Our lives are filled with fruit and joy and those kinds of things, and, and uh, you know, that, that's, that's a powerful thing. And that's really what unbelievers are looking for. Uh, unbelievers are not looking for the, the next work that they can do that, that brings them uh, you know, into the presence of God. They're not looking for another religion. They're looking for a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And how dare somebody come along and say, well, you need to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ by grace through faith, but you also need to do this. This is what really seals the deal. God did everything but this. And when you do this, now we're sure that you're saved. Now we're sure that you're going to heaven. How dare someone say that, whatever the this is? It's somewhat based in Scripture. It, has, it comes out of Scripture, but it's an addition to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we want to be careful that we don't fall into legalistic thinking as we walk with the Lord and as He gives us certain convictions that draw us close to Him, make us tight with Him. We don't want to be projecting them onto others as if a person can't be as spiritual as I am if they do some things that are in those gray areas. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, uh, you're a believer. Let God reveal to you either areas of legalistic thought or areas in which you are hiding behind some liberty in Christ where you're actually backslidden thinking that you're mature. If you're not a Christian, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to whoever will believe. Let's pray together. Father, we're, gl we're so glad to know the true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm thankful, Lord, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because it's the only way I can have a real assurance that I'm saved. If there's anything I must do in order to be saved other than have faith in Jesus Christ, I can never be sure I'm truly saved. And I see that in so many religions. There are those who believe that it's grace uh, through faith plus sacraments. Well, how many sacraments are there? How often do I need to partake of the sacraments? All of these questions arise, so many questions. 
And at the end of it, I don't know if I'm really saved and and maybe I, I will pass into eternity unsaved. There's no work that I can do that I can be sure that I've done it exactly correctly with the right water and the right words in the right way that will save me. But I can know that by grace alone, through faith alone, I've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Then afterwards, Lord, I want to live in a way that pleases you, but that also I enjoy because it brings me into a closer, deeper, more intimate and romantic relationship with you. Lord, if you've put something on my heart that I can or cannot partake of, I I thank you for that, Lord. If it's something that's not clearly taught in Scripture one way or the other, then I just want to receive that for myself and not project it onto my brothers and sisters for good or for ill. So I pray that we would not fall into being legalists or legalism, that we would not cloak our sin with liberty, and that we would be filled with your Spirit in such a way that others are seeking us out, seeing that there's something true, honest and sincere about the supernatural presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. If you uh, are wanting prayer for anything, if you have some need in your life, you want prayed for, come forward. The guys are here to pray with you. You can start coming forward even now to uh, come down for that. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You want to know more about how to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You want to have a moment when you pray with somebody and say, hey, will you pray with me? I want to know the Lord today then come on down and do that. We'll wait for you. May God bless you. May God keep you as you explore uh, your liberty in Christ, as you look into these issues of legalism. And more importantly, as we just ask the Lord to fill us and refresh us so that we're living a life that is undeniably full of Jesus Christ. Whether it's a legalist we're trying to silence or an unbeliever we're trying to show that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. May the Lord use us in those ways. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.